0: Humanities.
1: Hello, and welcome to Experimental Humanities Out Loud, the podcast where we investigate how technology mediates what it means to be human. I'm Maria Sachiko sasiri a professor here at Bard College, and I'll be taking you through this episode. I'm the director of the Center for Experimental Humanities and teach courses in literature and media studies at Bard. I'm hosting this episode because I teach a course called Woman is Cyborg, an EH and literature seminar that explores why mechanized creations that perform physical, emotional, and computational labor have been routinely identified as women in both fiction and reality. A few years ago, um, I talked through how wearable technology is helping to blur the lines between human and machine with my friend and fellow In Theory podcast host, Neuron Khan. Today, some of the Experimental Humanities students in my Woman a Cyborg course are joining me in the studio to refresh and update that conversation. Hello?
2: Hi, I'm Bird Cohen. I'm a junior at BARD and a music major with a concentration in Experimental Humanities.
3: And hi, I'm Ariel West. I'm a sophomore at BARD who is majoring in film and also has a concentration in Experimental Humanities.
1: First, um, I want to ask, what got you interested in thinking about how technology informs the human experience? Our big EH question. The
2: generation that we are in is like the first generation to be completely entrenched visually or visibly in technology. And it really manifests in your life and your relationships from like day one. Um, so when I think about like my artistic practice or my academic practice, everything is informed by technology and that's just like the, the more direct stuff that you can see. Um, I mean, obviously like we make art and we write and we learn on a computer. Um, but clearly things go a lot deeper than that. Um, now that technology has kind of changed from, uh, from like, like steampunky levers and gears to, um, more organic systems. Um, so it's really hard to un- and mesh yourself from that. So I think it's just something that's important for everyone to think about.
3: When I first got interested in thinking about technology and how like it evolves society, was probably last year when I took your intro to also Maria's intro to media class. <laughs> I was a little bit like I was definitely afraid of like those technologies and like what they're doing to society. And I think that that class helped me think about like technology as something that is not just like phone or computer as like glasses and like a pencil how even writing and like how that made it so society evolved in these other ways that i cherish so like that really helped me think about why i was scared of these technologies and like the good things they can do
1: you know building off of what you both were talking about just now do you see yourself as a cyborg
2: i think i do and if you had asked me that ten years ago, I think I would have thought that you were talking about like something from Star Trek um and you know still i um it took me a while to realize that the way that we look at technology is not really what it means because I think when we hear the word technology, we think of really flashy things, which is um digital technology, yeah, yeah, um, so I mean. I remember reading a long time ago about how, like, IUDs are considered, like, cyborg, uh, like, cyborgy, y Like, intrauterine devices? Um, and then I thought about how I'm wearing glasses. I think just, like, any, any device that has been, like, created by us to enhance our lives in any way is... What's what's a good like adjective to describe it? Cyborgy. I would go with cyborgy. cyborg-y I think that's the yeah. official term. Starting <laughs> <Cyborg-esque>. right now. <laughs> okay, the official term. Perfect.
3: I guess from my perspective, like thinking about the ways of me using like data collecting technologies, I guess, and like apps and platforms, is the fact that I'm using those technologies mean that I'm a cyborg, or is it the fact that these structures like capitalism is like collecting data and using it for their own things is that what being a cyborg is, is it like is it being a cyborg being within a structure that is like using your data and like your body as technology Kind
1: of. Yeah, that's great. So there's a kind of (laughs) distinction between thinking about yourself as an autonomous cyborg being or as part of a much larger system that draws upon your body and your data and your work in the world um, as part of a bigger machine.
3: Exactly. Yeah. Like, yeah, exactly.
1: So these are both fabulous questions. Um, So, But for now, why don't we start off for people who might be new to some of these questions by listening to the In Theory episode that Naren and I um, put out several years ago. And we'll start out by thinking there about wearable technology and um, things like Fitbits. And to the extent extent to which the quantified self-movement, the movement towards quantifying yourself, breaking yourself down into the kind of data that Ariel is just talking about now uh, might make us into cyborgs. So let's listen.
0: Hello, and welcome to In Theory, the podcast where we talk about the theories that help us make sense of the world. I'm Naran Khan. And I'm Maria Sachikosa-Siri. Today, we'll be talking about the quantified self-movement, the movement to gather data about ourselves and use it in the quest for self-improvement. Improvements in technology have been key to the expansion of the quantified self-movement and the mainstreaming of some of its ideas over the past five years. Sensors are smaller and cheaper than ever. Our ability to store large amounts of information has been enhanced many times over, and easy borrowing for tech companies and startups has led to the proliferation of tracking devices and apps. In today's episode, we'll start off with some
1: background on the quantified self-movement, including the good, the bad, and the ugly. We'll then, no joke, move on to a discussion of whether we are all cyborgs. Finally, we'll examine what the future looks like in light of our quantifiable data-driven inclinations.
0: So Maria and I thought it would make sense and also be fun to start off by sharing some of the ways in which we track ourselves and why. I can start off by sharing some of my favorites. Okay, go for it. Uh, <laughs> if I don't scare you. Okay, so I will reveal myself to be the person that like loves all personal tracking. I always have. So, Okay. There's like lots of little different bits of this. The ones I use or have used are the Fitbit, Moment, the billable hour tracking that we used to have my law firm, my period tracker, and Gmail meter, the app Moment, which was kind of endorsed and recommended by a podcast that uh, we listened to called Note to Self, which used to be called New Tech City. And they had a movement where they encouraged you to kind of be online less. And one of the ways in which they told you to do this was using this app that tells you how much you've been using your phone. So I look at it periodically. It's not very helpful to me because there's so many different ways in which I use my phone mm-hmm. that like, it's not helpful to know. like, If I'm just like streaming a ton of TV because I'm like tired and bored, I don't think that's bad. I'm just tired and bored. <laughs> um, <laughs> I think that's kind of the point of
1: moment, Naren. <laughs>
0: I know. Because <laughs> you're I'm, supposed like, to be, like, for
1: myself. I don't know, painting a picture while you're tired and bored. Or
0: something stretching. Totally something. fair. The, the the kind of program that led to this, their recommendation of this was called Born and Brilliant. And exactly. the idea was that you are supposed to be smarter if you get bored. So uh, maybe I'm just a bad audience for that. <laughs> um, for a while, I used this thing called Gmail meter, which fetches your email and like tells you who you email with the most. I wanted to pull up the very first one I found because for some reason I stopped doing it. But the the first one I pulled up was from like May of 2013. Mm -hmm. And two of the four top threads I had that month had to do with your 30th birthday party. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, like I thought that was always such a fun way to see like which of my friends I was communicating with. And this reminded me that I want to like pick that up again. Mm -hmm. That's cool. I forgot to say that I have been working the last couple of months, and I also found a way to keep track of, like, my activities every day, and I kind of co- color-coded them, but I will <laughs> I wish I was kidding, but I'm not, and, like, I have, like, social job networking, mm-hmm. um, experience, which is, like, stuff I wouldn't do if I was, like, normally working, but is fulfilling. I have one for in theory, Yay. um, I will say I did look and, and I was like, at some point I was like, oh, I've been hanging out too much and not really focusing on my job search. Like I got to do that just by glancing at my like unique color coding situation. Hmm. Oh, there you go. So how about you, Maria? Like how do you keep track of your life? Well,
1: I, I mean, I'm, I'm
0: a user of the
1: Google Calendar and yes. I have different kinds of tasks that are color coded um, and I make lists and I check them off. But otherwise, I'm not a very uh, kind of active pursuant of the quantified self-movement. Um, I don't have a Fitbit. I did download moments to see my cell phone usage, but then it took up too many megabytes on my cell phone, which I wanted to put music <laughs> on instead, so I deleted it. Um, <laughs> so I am i don't really do it very much. And there's, um, I mean, I definitely am like obsessed with Data in the same way a lot of people get. Um, So, for example, our, in theory, website uh, metrics, I'm always checking them and interested in how they fluctuate depending on different things that we do and different days of the week and what's happening in people's lives and that kind of thing. So I find it fascinating. But uh, in terms of my own kind of output, I don't know if I'm just, like, lazy or if I... I mean, I also have some kind of, like, philosophical concerns about quantifying myself in all of these ways so um so yeah I try not to do it too much but I I mean I do like the normal stuff right like I weigh myself when I remember to
0: great so we both have different ways we find this to be useful but I'd love to hear more about kind of your reservations and thoughts about this as we go along for sure cool maybe I'm being a little reckless and overly zealous (laughs) It might be useful just to understand what we're talking about when we talk about the quantified self movement. Yeah. I um, say I
1: didn't actually know what it was. Like, I knew that there were all these things out there that you could use to quantify
0: different parts of your life, but I didn't know it was a whole movement. It's a whole thing. So, So, you know, well before we started calling it that – you know, people have tracked different things about themselves for a long time. Mm-hmm. Women tracked their period and fertility thousands of years ago. Like mm-hmm. That was useful information. Training logs for athletes mm-hmm. were have always been a really big deal. But there have always been ways in which people um, have been gathering information about themselves and their bodies mm-hmm. toward a particular end. But the, the term quantified self was created by Gary Wolf and Kevin Kelly, who are writers for Wired Magazine in around 2008. Mm-hmm. And it basically spawned like a group, a kind of a global movement of meetups and conferences and meetings of both kind of users of this information and people who created this technology to kind of determine best practices and share methods and give advice on, you know, self-improvement through... These, this data and these metrics. And I'd say more recently, it's kind of a term used, and it's just been mainstream, so it doesn't necessarily mean that particular specific movement or individuals, but just the movement of us gathering information. And, and I mean, like Apple launched its health suite in 2014, mm-hmm. and so people were able to tra- track their steps and their weight and other things through that. There are other fitness trackers that have gained pretty serious traction, like Jawbone Up and Fitbit and Nike Fuel. And so just you know the technology has gotten better more Mm -hmm. and more people are talking about it and there really is this kind of like the swelling of the movement whatever you want to call is the movement so I mean I've even heard and we talk about industrial complexes so much we've heard you know, lots of people talk about the tracking industrial complex. Mm-hmm. So there's lots of different ways to describe it. We're going to use the the term, the quantified self, in a very loosey-goosey way. Probably not necessarily aligned with that specific group of people who are, like, meeting up all the time, but mm-hmm. about this this more recent movement.
1: Yeah. I mean, like, I bought my grandfather a Fitbit for Christmas yeah. with my siblings, like, last year. And he's, like, super into it, which is adorable, <laughs> yeah. but he's definitely not attending any kind of events in Silicon
0: Valley. Yet. (laughs) You never know. (laughs) Go in places. Some people think this is all super great. It helps people document and diagnose and improve their health and actual social behaviors. They feel more in control over their well-being. They feel more empowered to make change. Mm -hmm. I mean, I I don't know if that's how you feel about kind of any of the ways in which you document yourself, but there's a lot of language around this and certainly in the marketing of of these products, Mm -hmm. especially with respect to sleep and, and other stuff.
1: Yeah, I don't know that that the language of that stuff is is, is actually actually precisely what kind of freaks me out about it. <laughs> yes, yes, talk about that. <laughs> um, because I, I feel like that kind of portioning out of the self and the idea that everything ultimately can be broken down into factoids or bits of information, and yeah. you know the idea that data or information at the end of the day is kind of. The true composition of everything. I just don't agree with that. And the more that we kind of use those metaphors as a way to break up who we are into these discrete pieces, um, I think the easier it is to to believe that and to lose sight of the fact that a lot of parts of our lives bleed into each other and influence each other, and that also we're more than maximization machines. Although I definitely, you know, at times need to maximize more. <laughs> but, uh, but I also think it's uh, kind of, especially amongst overachieving people, um, it can get really out of control. And um, for other people, it can legitimate, I think, behaviors that seem really oppressive, right, where we just have culture that expects everyone to be like at maximum productivity all the time like for what for what are we at on right. productivity all the time
0: it's so super like, unforgiving if you have that documented right yeah it's like yeah. we're
1: trying to have like the hottest bot and produce the most billable hours and do all these things for other people's money making for i mean i don't know like there are definitely benefits to it but i think there also needs to be some kind of stepping back and asking questions
0: So your intuitions have put, you know, the finger on like the pulse of a lot of the criticism, the public criticism about this stuff. You're totally on point. I guess I'll just list off some of the, the, some of the concerns people have about this. Mm -hmm. You know, first and foremost, the quality of the data, Mm -hmm. you know, it's not all it promises to be. And we assume at all times that these things are operating at their, you know, at their best and they may not be. Mm. The time and effort Uh, that goes into capturing the data assumes kind of a level of privilege, right? Like if you're trying to – if you're living paycheck to paycheck and working multiple jobs, Mm -hmm. you know, you don't want to stay up till 3 a.m. like inputting the food that you ate during your like 15-minute lunch hour. So, you know, it just assumes a level of privilege to be able to devote time to this stuff. Mm -hmm. It causes you to prioritize things that may not necessarily be the best just because they're more quantifiable and Mm -hmm. so much of – these criticisms span a lot of other things. And there was a really great New Yorker article this week on criticisms of the the um, the GDP wow. and, like, the, the term the GDP. And it's super ubiquitous, um, but it's also super arbitrary and kind of absurd. Like, if you assume the growth that we, you know, like, that we're at right now, like, in X number of years, we'll be, like, a billion times more productive mm-hmm. <laughs> than we are now. So, like, so they don't capture everything and – We don't necessarily think about the limitations of these things when Mm -hmm. we're, like, using this data. The goals you're pointed to might not be the best for you. Like, is 10,000 steps really the right thing for everyone regardless of their age, weight, and gender? Mm -hmm. Um, I'm sure you're familiar with a lot of the gender criticisms of of a lot of this technology because they're developed by men. For an um, <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> um, and in the bigger picture, are we confident that the data that we're so willing to gather about ourselves is going to be safe and, like, not misused by others? So, like, yeah. this is just the tip of the iceberg in terms of criticism, but I'd say, I guess it's just, like, not stuff you think about regularly. So on the whole, is this stuff good or bad? I, that's a really big question. I can't answer it right away. But um, I, I think that on the whole,
1: it's got both in it. What concerns me is the w- the way it shapes our culture. And I think that there's so much valuable uh, stuff that we can do with these sort of quantifying apps and that sort of thing. Um, but everything has to be approached with like a really with your brain screwed on, you know. And, and I think that a lot of times that because of the way that... These companies make money it's really it's not in their interest to ask us to think carefully through what happens to our data where a lot of these companies that's what they really want is our data not to sell us hardware right that's all fine and good but what's more exciting is how many kind how many steps a day do these people in these demographic groups take you know in these parts of the world and where do they go that kind of thing that's information that's so useful to them so there's that um but you know like i said at the same time it can be empowering to have a sense of, you know, yourself in a way that is kind of a snapshot.
0: So, yeah. Meh, yeah. <laughs> well, so let's wrap up this kind of background section. We know people have been gathering and using data about themselves for thousands of years, um, but rapid technological changes have enhanced our ability to do this today. Uh, like so many things in life, this is probably not necessarily singularly good or bad, but it probably depends on – how you do this and your approach. And frankly, it also depends on security and who has access to the information about you.
1: Indeed, it does.
0: So, Maria, are we all cyborgs? <laughs> 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 hmm.
1: so a cyborg is a kind of combination of uh, organic and cybernetic beings so part human part machine basically um, which was how we would think about it when it comes to talking about ourselves and um yeah, why did we take a sudden left turn to cyborgs from Fitbits? Because, you know, it seems a little bit extreme. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, but I'm really interested in this question because I think it's kind of one of the most fun aspects of all of our wearable technology now, um, mm-hmm. is that a lot of like sci-fi dreams about the future are starting to come true, and uh, I think a lot of times we don't really notice how quickly it's happening.
3: Um, like at all. Yeah, yeah, exactly, right?
1: Um, and so there's a a theorist that um I definitely want to talk about because she's like so important and so interesting. Her name is Donna Haraway, and she wrote um something called a cyborg manifesto, which she published in nineteen eighty five originally, and then was like kind of part of this book that she published in the nineties. Um and she was uh, at the time she argued that we are already cyborgs. Um in part because, you know, we do wear and carry around kind of technologies on us. And you got to think, she's right in the 80s, so she's like... Yeah, I can't
0: believe she... Gosh, she, re, she said that in 1985. Like, yeah. I wonder what she would say now. Like, now we're like fully robots. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but
1: she's, you know, she's, her for her, it's not just the stuff that we wear, but more importantly, the kind of the leaky distinction between humans and machines that really came about in the 20th century. Um, and okay. her work um grows out of that so that grows out of work that she was doing on the distinction between humans and animals. So Darwin, our friend Darwin, um, really <laughs> shook up the way that everybody thought about what it meant to be human with his theories of evolution because you go from being um divine divinely created placed on earth by God to, you know, evolved from animals. And mm-hmm. so, you know, she was saying how by the time she was writing the 80s You know, that distinction between humans and animals is pretty much completely broken down. And people see themselves as animals, as a kind of animal, you know, distinct from other animals, but also an animal, right? Yeah. But um, what was really kind of special about the later part of the 20th century and totally true now is how much we started to think about ourselves as machines. Oh, wow. So it really is like a a metaphor thing, right? So Mm -hmm. there's... The thing where we actually have all these extensions of ourselves um, that are made up of machinery. But then there's also the way that we imagine ourselves. Um, and so, like, one of the most obvious ways to think about that would be, um, like, the metaphors that we use when we're talking about ourselves. So we'll talk about, like, processing information or needing to reboot something. And so we start oh to, like, gosh. borrow the language of machinery and especially computers now to talk about ourselves and our minds.
0: Oh, my gosh. Like, shut it down. <laughs> yeah
1: right <laughs> Totally.
0: I've and, never thought about that before
1: I, yeah I find it so interesting and, and we started to shift over to use the language of like kind of industrial machinery um, following mm-hmm. the industrial revolution and in the 20th century you know talking about our bodies as machines in that way and we still use that mm-hmm. kind of language um, like especially talking about like uh, like working out and that kind of stuff right yeah like he's a machine for example right yeah <laughs> um, <laughs> that way of thinking about ourselves I think is really important because it throws into question, I mean, by deciding that we are happy to use Fitbits all the time and that we're happy to quantify all these different parts of ourselves, it starts to throw into question what we even think it means to be human. Yeah. Which is like like the biggest question.
0: (laughs) Right. And especially because this was like, this like creeps up on us, right, over time. It's like nothing that happened overnight and it's certainly not like the encounters that people envisioned when they were like sci-fi fantasying about this, right? Like a lot of those movements were like the, you know, just like the creation of an artificial being at a particular moment that forced the hand of imagining or or reconciling the situation. And instead it's like bit by bit, like microprocessor by microprocessor Mm -hmm. and item by item, this is happening to us. Um, It's just really interesting because I haven't, I, given how much I engage with this stuff, I've thought very little about, like, the bigger picture.
1: It's really fun. I mean, I start. I taught um, a couple classes around these topics, and it was just, like, my brain was exploding every day, and it was so <laughs> yeah. fun to read about, so interesting. Um, and, you know, there's actually a lot of physical cyborgism around. So we see internal things like pacemakers, cochlear mm-hmm. implants, um, you know, more and more we're seeing that as part of kind of medical practices. Um, and so yep. and we're taking that for granted that that's happening, but we don't treat those people like cyborgs, and it's also not that super common. Right. Um, but some of the really interesting theory also uh, is looking at things like, you know, I, that we could put on and off, like eyeglasses um, mm-hmm. or even – like carrying around an external brain that you can put in your pocket, um, which has access to all kinds of information out there that's more than you ever would be able to carry inside of your own brain.
0: Oh my gosh, like Google Glass.
1: Yeah, or just like your phone, right? Yeah, yeah. And so the idea that there's another theorist, who's an important media theorist from the 60s. I mean, let's talk about people thinking ahead of their time. He was writing about electronic media, um, Marshall McLuhan, um, is interested in the idea of ex- media as extensions of the self. And so every oh, wow. time, we, yeah, like every time we adopt a new media uh, as something that we're really kind of reliant upon and has totally entered into our lives, it rearranges what he calls our sense perceptions. And so the yeah. way that we engage with the world shifts because now we have this kind of extended part of ourself that makes it so we engage with the world differently. So, like, How many people, when they wake up in the morning, if they leave for work and realize they've forgotten their phone, about face and run back in and grab it, right?
0: Yeah, totally. Because... You feel
1: like some part of you is missing. Exactly. Because if you're used to having an extended brain, an extended ear, an extended, you know, mouth so you can talk to people far away and you can hear from them and you can find out information on the go and all this other stuff, and suddenly you're expected to go your whole day without this, like, part of your body. It feels crazy. Like, I'm not doing that. Yeah. So, I mean, so all this quantified uh, self-movement stuff is really interesting to me because it is, you know, very much an adoption and a kind of embracing of thinking about ourselves as, at least in some ways, Mm -hmm. machine-like, which I don't actually think is necessarily bad, um, but it is something that we should know that we're doing.
0: Right. Well, so many of the imagined encounters about this historically have been, like, terrifying and alarming. Mm -hmm. So it's hard not to put that value judgment on it and to feel like it's a, you know, it's a real encounter with basically aliens or something.
1: (laughs) So, I mean, and I totally agree. Donna Haraway um, was actually, like, really into cyborgism. Um, And The Cyborg Manifesto is actually a feminist text. And her whole argument was basically like, "Ladies, time to embrace cyborgism. This is the answer we've all been looking for, uh, because it breaks us free from biological determinism. We're no longer bound to the expectations of our body." Um, That's
0: real. Yeah.
1: Wow. <laughs> and so once you can kind of see yourself as this, you know, part machine being that is, you know, not defined by. Family connections, marriage, marriage connections, reproduction. Fertility. Exactly. Yeah. Then now all these opportunities open up to women uh, that weren't open to them before, um, and yeah. in fact can transform society, not just for women but for everybody. So sure. she actually saw this as this really hopeful uh, possibility. Although whether or not that's actually come to pass, uh, I, I can't. I can't say. But <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know. I mean, hearing about this, does this affect the way that you think about yourself as someone who is, you know, kind of part of a quantified self movement in a
0: way? I think I at least initially found this to be, like, a little scary because the bigger picture had escaped me. I was, like, so into, like, my phone and figuring myself out. Um, but I am, like, someone that, like, is, like, in love with self-help and self-improvement. <laughs> and so I think I probably, like, once once I got over, like, my initial ignorance and the shock of that, I actually feel okay about this. And I think that my my main fear relates to the misuse of my own information. Mm. Like, someone will understand me better than I understand myself or someone who has access to this stuff. And I think other than that, like, I don't think there's anything wrong with becoming, like, half cyborg. mostly cyborg that's so
1: interesting i i think that's awesome i mean because basically what you're saying is you don't mind being a cyborg as long being part machine as long as no one else is holding the controls
0: oh yeah like 100 percent. like the borg in star trek i could just go on and on about them like the borg are only scary in that they follow the mission of the person in charge exactly
1: yeah that's so true and i don't know i what about you yeah. Because I think at the end of the day, what's so scary about these visions of cyborg futures is often that we will be programmable from the outside. Yeah. Um, and I, I know I'm, I forced you to read this YA novel um, feed by yes. M.T. Anderson, <laughs> which I just adore. I teach it. Um, I like recommend it to everyone. But basically, it's, right, it's this, I, about being part cyborg and thinking that you have control over yourself. But the ways in which consumer culture actually totally infiltrates your mind and makes it so that what you want has been... Has been totally, Fed into
0: you, essentially. Exactly. Fed into you by yeah. outside influences. And, like, that's not what you want, right? Yeah, we should totally link to the book. It's, like, a great read. And I, like, thank you for, like, bringing that into my life. Oh. <laughs> While we have been collecting data on ourselves for a long time as human beings, um, our
1: time now is special in that we not only have access to so much more information about ourselves, but we've actually started to think of ourselves as machines, in a sense, and particularly as computers. This has huge ramifications for what it means to be a person today and could seriously influence how people think about what it means to be a person in the future too. So we'll get to that next.
0: Uh, so all of this is like kind of leading to the biggest question of, of them all, and today is totally a macro day. Um <laughs> like what what does the future of all of this look like? How does how do how does us like putting on a Fitbit and checking our phones like incrementally lead to something bigger?
1: Yeah, I, I love the way that today's gone from the most micro, which is like one step <laughs> marked on our little tally on our phone um, to the super macro, which is like, what does it mean to be human and where are we all going? Um, And (laughs) I feel that we cannot talk about cyborgs and quantifying ourselves without talking about the singularity. So you may have come across at some point, this guy, Ray Kurzweil, who's a futurist, he's an inventor and thinker and all kinds of stuff. Um, He now works for Google, of course. And he suggests that the end game to all of this uh, that we're talking about is, you got it. Immortality—it's like we got one idea that we fixate on, right? And so he believes, and he's working on the possibility of like maximizing the body's health potentials and working with artificial intelligence to eventually merge with machines so that we will never die. So yes, yeah, no.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> but it's a kind of the logical conclusion of wanting to, you know, be the most in shape and the most healthy and the most mindful and the most all these other things, is to, you know, be so maximal that you never die.
0: It also sounds like such a dude thing. Oh, my God, Like a dude
1: dream, like a, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Don't even get me started on the demographics of the uh, community that is involved in um, this kind of futurist thing. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, there's actually, oh, my God, there's, like, an amazing Tumblr called, like, White Dudes Wearing Google Glass.
0: I recommend. Um, yeah, of course. I recommend. Yeah, no, it's so real. So um, so anyway. real.
1: So so yeah. I mean, basically, the singularity. The idea of the singularity is that in the very near future, based on the exponential rate of technological development, we are going to merge with computers and be kind of permanently from here on out, part and potentially completely <laughs> machine. Yeah. Yeah. Live in the dream. Yeah, exactly. I mean, he's basically (laughs) he he builds on something called Moore's Law, which talks about like the kind of rate of um, kind of computer uh, advancements. And he's looking at things like you know computing speeds, memory storage capacity, uh, global telecommunications reach. All of that stuff is kind of increasing and and speeding up so rapidly that he's arguing that within. Less than 30 years, uh, between 2030s and sometime around 2045, we're going to be merged with machines completely. So here's what, I guess, creeps me out about it the most, um, is, you know, there's a story about how he's trying to bring his dad back to life. Um and I think it really relates to the quantified self um, because basically what it is is he's gathered up all the output from his life, his dad's life, like his letters, documents, photos, and that kind of thing. And taken all this information and is trying to kind of recreate his personality and his mind from all of these mm-hmm. bits of information. Um, and he wants to make a clone from his DNA also so he can like kind of whack that mind into the body. Um, and then there's this one article where he gets interviewed about it. He says... Um, and I'm quoting here, you can certainly argue that, philosophically, that is not your father. That is a replica. But I can actually make a strong case that it would be more like my father than my father would be were he to live. And, oh, that's so creepy. And I know, exactly, because I'm, I'm like, wait, but but it's not your father. So all it does is make you feel good about the idea that you're around your father Maybe it would have made your father feel good to think that there would be some legacy of him that lives on, but he wouldn't know anything about it.
0: It's just so interesting because, like, we've been jokingly saying that this is forcing our hand and making us talk about, like, who we are, what are we, whatever. But, like, that question is clearly the next thought that comes to mind after you hear something like that. Like, really, truly, who are we? Mm -hmm. Exactly. Uh, It can't be that. We can't be the product of our... Uh, you know uh, quantifiable outputs Mm -hmm. and our DNA like there's more to our souls than that and maybe that's like the spiritual me talking
1: no totally I mean it's like that question of like if you have a ship that leaves a port and you replace every single item on the ship over the course of its travels is it the same ship when it gets back you know
0: I don't know whoa (laughs) (laughs) oh amazing
1: yeah so I don't know I mean There's definitely a lot of kind of raced, classed, gendered stuff going on with this particular community. Um, And like you said, it it does feel like the concerns of people who have a lot of things going for them now worrying about mortality, which sure people have worried about for a long time. Um, Mm -hmm. But... Yeah, I don't know. I, I do think there's something kind of beautiful in the human striving to live forever, but I think part of what makes it beautiful is its inevitable tragedy, and to me there's something kind of perverse in the idea that, like, that they might succeed. It just seems uncanny to me, but maybe I'm too bound to my to my animal self. <laughs> so, okay. While we're in the midst of the day-to-day of trying to gather and use data to understand ourselves individually, you know, there are a lot of folks out there who are thinking about our society's broader future. For some, like Ray Kurzweil, that means merging with machines. Really, all these questions are nudging us to the bigger questions at hand. So who are we? What are we? Where do we want to go? Do we want to live forever? I don't know. I bet you didn't put on your Fitbit this morning thinking it was turning you into a robot, but maybe it is.
0: It's likely that we'll continue to have more access than ever to technologies that will help us gather information to improve ourselves. It's so easy to get an iOS update and start to use a new kind of application, Uh, But in the aggregate, it's also super useful to think about what you want to get out of any one of these applications or technologies, and to really think about the bigger picture of where we're headed as a society if we continue to use them. It's also important to think about the limitations of any given piece of technology.
1: I totally agree. I also think it's worth pausing and asking ourselves, how does this culture of the quantified self contribute to the frantic need to be productive? Why do we even want to maximize ourselves There are some serious overlaps here between, you know, the most intimate personal parts of ourselves and capitalist theories of maximization. This is especially true since a lot of these technologies feed directly into a corporate system that's totally monetizing our data. We live in a society that prizes production and maximization, goal setting and achieving. You know, these aren't bad things, but what about contemplation, learning for its own sake, compassion, generosity, pursuit of art and beauty? I think it's worth taking time
0: to think about that stuff and making sure we have space for it in our lives, too. Totally fair. And thank you, Maria. That's like, that totally, totally resonates. But also, you know, feminist robots good. (laughs) (laughs) Great. All right. Want to shut this down?
1: Totally. Questions, comments, ideas? We'd love to hear from you at intheorypodcast at gmail.com. You can also find past podcasts and more info about us at intheory.us or on our Facebook page. Please subscribe to us on iTunes and recommend us to any and all of your friends. Seriously,
0: please. In Theory is produced with the support of Experimental Humanities and Human Rights Radio at Bard College. Music composition and art design by the unrivaled Aaron taylor Waldman. Thanks for listening.
1: So thanks for listening. Um, back to Bert and Ariel, for the two of you, being in the Woman of Cyborg course, which kind of um, departs from some of the discussions in the the episode we just listened to. Um, being in this course, what's one thing you'd want to add to this conversation for our Humanities Out Loud listeners?
2: So um, one thing, listening to this episode, like in now in 2019, I think one thing that has changed is that the whole quantified self movement, which felt very revolutionary and very like kind of, um, out there very present Um, in 2016 has kind of become a lot more ubiquitous a lot more hidden and a lot more integrated I think Um, I maybe partially because all of the features of these like devices that people used to buy really like all the time like Fitbits have just been integrated into your phone and even even like the Apple Watch which was I think first marketed really as like a lifestyle device uh, or a piece of jewelry has now kind of switched to be marketed more as a device for athletes and for people to monitor themselves. So um, it's it's an interesting shift that I've noticed in the past three or four years.
1: Yeah, so the idea that the quantified self-movement is not so much of a thing, not because people stopped doing it, but because it's so everywhere that – You don't even need to talk about it as a movement. It's just life.
3: Yeah, exactly. And, like, the fact that you don't even know with what used to be on a Fitbit is just, like, in your phone. And it has been in your phone for, like, what, two years? So you can look back at something that's been tracking you, but you didn't realize it. And also, your phone also becomes somewhere where you're, like, self-policing because you, like, okay, for, like, me, like, I go on Instagram I decided too much so I have like a timer that turns on and it tells me if I've been on Instagram for more than 30 minutes and then I always ignore it which is really bad but it's supposed to make me stop doing it. (laughs) Um, One it used to be tracking the outside world and like what you were doing in the outside world has also become tracking what you're doing online and then two like it's all within one device i guess so it's just a part of what we're doing every day
2: yeah i I think our our data is being collected all the time and we've grown just like we we're allowing it it's okay like we're acquiescing Yeah, exactly we're acquiescing to it um and it's out there and it's influencing our relationship with capitalism with what we buy and people were up in arms about that for a hot second and then It just kind of became subdued.
1: yeah. And that kind of speaks to what you were saying earlier, Ariel, before we were listening, um, to thinking about how we end up inscribed in systems that are using us all the time and that we acquiesce to being used inside of, um, but that make us part of something much bigger than ourselves, something often very intensely digitized um, in a way that you could certainly argue, makes us part of a kind of cybernetic machine.
2: You talk in the episode about Kurzweil, and I don't know a lot about him, but I think it might be fair to say that he's probably not looking for a, like, communist post-human utopia. Probably more like he feels super psyched to be inside of a computer and to lose his body, and I think, like, comparing that to what Donna Haraway talks about in terms of being able to use the technology in place to kind of refresh, reimagine the systems that we have now um, and use, use our relationship to technology in a really empowering way. I think that difference really shows the way that feminist theory like works with cyborg theory.
1: Yeah. I mean, this kind of helpfully reminds us of the kind of two sides of, of the cyborg that we're imagining, both where, um, Women end up becoming essentially machinery, the Stepford wife situation, right? You're like replaceable by robots and in some ways really are just kind of an extension of men's, you know, in many historical circumstances, need for labor. On the other side is this Harawayan version of the cyborg, which is all about making connections and affinities where you want, letting go of old origin stories and letting go of old structures and hierarchies and trying to imagine a whole new systems, being unfaithful to your military industrial fathers um, and trying to to, trying to make something new. Thank you both so much. This has been super fun. And I'm looking forward to the rest of the semester with you. And I hope you all will tune in for more episodes from Experiments of Humanities Out Loud.